Offshore Explorer. I'm your host, Scott Dodgson. After listening to the last podcast and my attempt at dissuading you from becoming a charter boat captain, I thought, well, I might have been a bit negative about the whole thing because, you know, there's a couple of really good reasons why I did it for so many years. Um, a couple of those reasons were the people. Um, I actually enjoyed 99% of the people that came on the boat, um, I enjoyed the freedom. I enjoyed the traveling. Um, I made some money. I had a great, great time. But if you're a glutton for punishment, which I know many of you are, I'll outline a couple of ways to get into the business. And with a lot of luck, you can become successful. All charter boats are not equal. In terms of business, you have uh, charter-based companies which you buy into and they run your boat for you. Essentially, they're using your credit to buy a charter boat and you're paying for it and then they're chartering it for you to the public for a fee. And you can make a little bit of money on this, but you know you had just have this idea that, oh yeah, I own a boat in the Caribbean or I own a boat in in Albania or Croatia or whatever. So you have those, that kind of idea. And it, it actually isn't a bad deal. It becomes a bad deal because you're on the hook for the payments to the boat. And unless, you know, you're going to use the boat on a regular basis, um, it kind of, there's an uh, in-between spot in which it's worth it and another spot which is just better to just charter your own, you know, charter a boat that's someone else's. So there are some things there. Um, one of the things you can't do is um, you can't move the boat around unless the charter company has a base there. So let's say you're in uh, the British Virgin Islands and you're, you're doing pretty well and you say, geez, you know, I'd really love to charter down in the Grenadines because it's a little more unspoiled, it's a, it's a little more remote, it's a little more interesting, and just that kind of thing. If the charter boat company that's managing your boat doesn't have a base down there, they're not going to let you go down there because you'll be going against the contract. Then there's another, another level, um, which is using the uh, buying a boat yourself and using a charter brokerage. Now, everybody needs a clearinghouse when you're in the charter business. You need some place in which all the charter brokers can call and say, can I book this person, somebody who keeps your calendar, so to speak. Some companies are better than others. Um, some are a pain in the ass. Um, one quick story is, is on my very first trip to Europe, um, I had planned this trip, and I had informed my brokerage that I was going to be chartering in Greece. I had um, contracted with another brokerage in Greece to handle my business in Greece. And it was my good friend, Maccus. And uh, that was in Rhodes, Greece. And the company in the Caribbean, I said, look, you know, I'm not going to be here for the summer. I'm going to Europe. Then I'm coming back, and I hope you book my charters. They said, no problem. Um, I told them I would be at the Antigua, or, um, Antigua uh, 
charter boat show, that was no problem. Here's where I'll be. Um, I'll see all the brokers during that period. That's like December 6th, 7th, 8th, 10th, right in that, that mode. Um, and I'll be ready to go charter and do the Caribbean season. Then when I finish the Caribbean season, I'll go do the uh, Antigua Race Week. Um, and then after Antigua Race Week, I'll leave and go back to Europe. And that was my uh, 18 years of, of travel. That's exactly how it all worked for me. So when I left, um, I left a little bit late because I got caught up in the yard um, getting the bottom done and a couple of other things. And I took the boat from uh, the uh, Virgin Islands down to uh, Trinidad, where it's always, it's fantastic to work in Trinidad. Um, and I enjoyed being down there. And we had a great, great time. And, um, you know, got the boat, lots of skilled people. I had a lot of work to do on the boat, got it all cleaned up and ready to go and um, set and I dropped in the water and I was eh, running a couple of days late, actually more like a week late. But in any case, I ran up to St. Thomas and um, got everything loaded up and and left. And I told the charter brokerage, uh, the clearinghouse, that I would be uh, going to Europe. I went back to Europe or went to Europe and they made the made the crossing, uh, made the crossing across uh, the Mediterranean. I got the roads. Everything was copacetic. I called them, said, yeah, we're all good. And then I went off, and I did my charter season in the summer in the Eastern Med. I turned around. I called them up. I said, hey, yeah, I'm coming. Well, they had had a hurricane that had blown through, and everybody was a bit shaken. Um, and I was really questioning to a certain point of whether I was going to um, go back. Um, I didn't know how the charter business would recover after a major hurricane. And I quite honestly don't remember the name of it. Um, but in any case, uh, they said, yeah, no, we're good, we're good, we're good. I said, okay, great. So I turned around uh, in Rhodes, finished the season, and in October, uh, late September, October, I, I made the trek back um, slowly across the eastern across the Med. Um, I think on that trip I did North Africa. Um, you know, always want to do like bucket list stuff. I wanted to go here, I wanted to go there. Um, I stopped uh, in Tunisia, saw my great friends in Tunisia, had a great time. Um, then we took off uh, across the Atlantic, came back. I was at the Charter Boat Show and I call up the, the brokerage company. You know, I say, hey, how's my bookings? Where are we at? Do we have Christmas done or New Year's? Because those are big, big weeks for chartering. And it turns out, oh, we didn't think you were going to come back. And it turns out they actually sold the business. And it was a new ownership. And they didn't think I was going to make it back for some reason. I mean, it was the stupidest, stupidest, stupidest. Oh, man, I was so upset. And I had nothing booked for the season. Absolutely nothing. And it was just because of this little brokerage company and new owners that, you know, you weren't here, so we couldn't book you. And this is a problem. This, is, this was an unsophisticated, um, naive, and inexperienced uh, charter brokerage. 
So if you're going to take your boat and you're going to put it in a brokerage, really try to get a really experienced brokerage that understands that you're going to be moving the boat around and you're going to be going here, you're going to be going there, you're going to be doing a lot of different things with your boat, and you need them to hold up their booking, okay? This is a real important thing. So the other thing that you have to also think about is if you're going to get into this business, you've got to be fully committed to this project. And being fully committed means who is your partner? And you guys have to evaluate yourself. You know, are, do you, are, are you good looking? Or do you look good? I mean, you have to understand how people are going to find you and your boat. Okay? The brokerage sales business is a kind of mom and pop kitchen business. Okay? It's inverted. It's the sales force kind of runs the business, whereas you make the product, but you have little or no say in the project. Um, they kind of outline everything, the salespeople. And, you know, they're just mothers and business women sitting in their kitchen and making a deal. At least that's the way it was. There are more um, and more sophisticated charter brokerages. Um, and Kemper Nicholson, for example, um, they're very sophisticated. They understand it. They they, they have tons of uh, years of experience. They have their outlines. They know what you want. they want. They know what you can do. Um, they have a good evaluation system. And this is something that you have to apply to what you're going to do. And when I say looking good is you're going to have like a brochure or a website or stuff, and people want to see who they're going to spend their vacation with. So, you know, if you look like the Hunchback of Notre Dame, no offense to the Hunchbacks of Notre Dame, but you got to be, you got to look fresh. You got to look clean. You know, you've got to have some sort of polish about you because this is a really important decision for people to make. If you've ever chartered a crewed charter boat, you'll know that the crew really makes the charter. I mean, the boat is great, but if you, if you have a kind of a, a you know, moody, belligerent, don't care, I mean, list all the negative uh, opinions um, and behaviors, and you're trapped on this boat for a week, um, you know, it's going to be a very unpleasant situation. So energy is another big thing. You've got to project this energy. How much energy do you have? And listen, running a charter boat takes a great deal of energy. You know, you're up at the crack of dawn. You know, you're you're making breakfast, you're preparing meals, you're, you know, getting the boat prepared for sailing all day. I mean, think about when you sail normally, you know, you go down to the boat, get out of the marina, you're on your boat, you got to get everything out, you fix everything up, you get your lines ready, you got everything ready. And it, you know, it takes you time to get ready. Well, in the charter boat business, you're usually sailing two or three times a day, right? So you have breakfast, everybody takes a swim, whatever you get on the boat, up goes the anchor, you're going to your next site for lunch, okay? So you get a good sail in that. And that could be two, three, four hours. Have lunch, everybody goes snorkeling, does whatever they want to do. Okay, lunch is done. Okay, it's evening, we're going to the next anchorage or or harbor or marina, or whatever the case may be, so there's your next thing. And you have all these, uh, you're moving all the time. So 
there's so much work to do on the boat, especially if there's just two of you. Um, if it, and I have always, I'm always recommending doing a bigger boat, of course. Um, that way you can have an additional crew. It just helps so much in your, in your energy level and not getting so tired. The other thing is experience. If you get into the business, it's, I really recommend you go get some experience. And what I mean by this, if you're young enough or whatever, um, hop out there and go crew a charter boat. Um, go on a charter boat yourself. See how the crew does it. All right. Maybe charter a boat, a bear boat. Take your friends with you and try to figure out how to do that. Right. Figure out all the ins and outs. Learn from other people. I have found that most people in the charter business are very generous with both their time and and their advice. Uh, sometimes a little bit too much with the advice, but in any case, you can you can really uh, learn a lot. And people are very generous about it because there is a special kind of sweet spot in the kinds of people that can do this. Um, and the question is is whether you can do it. So. There's a lot of skills you need to have. First of all, you need be able you need to be able to fix anything on your boat. You don't have time to go onto the internet. Most of the sailing I've done is um, I, we either didn't have the internet, it didn't exist, and when there was an internet, um, we never had cell phone coverage or Wi-Fi coverage for the internet. We had to go someplace to do it, and you had to fix whatever it was you had to fix. So you have to become an expert on all your systems. You have to have backups for your systems. You have to understand the ins and outs. You have to understand why it's doing this or why it's not performing this way. And this is really important. So you've got to have the skills in terms of doing that. And yet the maintenance comes with that. You'll learn as you go along. Now sailing, a lot of people love to take a charter boat because, you know, they're they're club sailors or they're sailors in general, and um, they love to get on a bigger boat because I, I would say that probably 50% of the people that I've ever had on charter um, were, were sailors, um, and they, they, they had their own, some had their own boats, usually smaller, 20-something boats, and they were more generally like, this is a big boat. I want to learn how to be on a big boat. I want to, you know, do all the ins and outs. And, and I'll explain it in this way. It's like, if you don't anchor a lot um, when you go sailing, if you just, you know, you leave your lines at the dock, and then you go out, you sail, and you come back, okay? There's a vast amount of experience that you're missing in terms of going out and anchoring, staying on the boat all night, um, you know, setting your drift, all of these sort of things, right? Um, if you've not done any kind of practice with Mediterranean mooring, that is where you drop your hook and then back your boat off of it and then tie yourself up to the dock, you know, usually slipping between two boats. If you've not done that, okay, and you're going all over the place, you're going to have to do that, right? So these are things that you could pick up watching somebody else do that and their best to let professionals do it, even though you aspire to be a professional, that's how professionals are. You you see somebody teach you do it, doing it, then you do it yourself. The other thing is cooking. Um, does can your partner cook? Um, and I don't mean like you know, 
you know, like baked beans and hot dogs and hamburgers and grilled steaks and a couple of, you know, silly salads and stuff like that. Can your partner really cook? Because in the charter business, it's very competitive. And the chefs that are on these boats are very, very good. And they uh, are so professional. So if you have somebody that's coming on your boat, your your wife, for example, your girlfriend, um, send her off to cooking school. Get her some, some mad skills. And, you know, get her to make sure she has a feel for that kind of stuff. Because um, cooking on a boat and cooking in the kitchen is a difference. Um, but you have to maintain a really good, um, you have to maintain really good and high quality food and food presentation. So I would, re- I would recommend going off to some uh, culinary school and uh, beefing up your skills as far as that. The other thing that I would look at is what's your behavioral dispositions? Are you cool? Are you not prone to anger under pressure? Because, you know, you're serving people. You don't have a place to go and stick your head in and scream. Um, you can't be rude and nasty to your crew and your guests. You have to sort of stay above that. You can't let it all get to you. And trust me, you'll be so tired. You know, you'll be dragging your butt. All right? It's fun. So, I mean, think think about it this way. You're there participating in someone's week-long vacation. And most times this is the best vacation, special vacation they've ever been on. And they're really excited and they want to really party and they really want to have fun. And it's like the top vacation of their lifetimes and you're a participant in that. The energy that it requires to get up for that is a huge reason why I had to get out of the business because I just sort of ran out of charm. I ran out of that kind of energy, and I just couldn't do it anymore. I just lost interest in supporting this really fine and beautiful thing of creating a beautiful vacation, a beautiful time for people, and romantic time for couples, romantic time for, or happy time and fun time for families, etc. And and I just I just lost the will to do that. And that's why I think, you know, I've run through the process of understanding and and that's what I'm passing along today. So the thing is is you have to stay cool. And one of the rules that I always said is never when the guests are on board, never talk about the guests. Regardless, never say a word about the guests in a negative word, right? Even privately, don't. I don't want to hear it. Because once you say something negative, it manifests. And people can sense it. They can pick it up, right? They, oh, he doesn't like me. Or she, she's jealous. Or he's this. Or she's that, right? And, and, and the crew is a little bit snotty or whatever the case may be. No, don't do that. Don't, don't even give it air, you know, um, suffocate it at, at its birth. Keep your mouth shut. Everything is rosy until they all leave, and then you can say whatever you want after they leave. So as a small aside, I had um, 
really, I, there's three mates, chefs, cooks that I have, I have had that will illustrate this a little bit more. One of my uh, chefs was, and she wasn't a chef, she was a cook, but my God, could, could she cook. Her name was Florence, and Florence uh, was uh, very pretty. Um, she was French. Um, she came uh, from La Rochelle. Um, she was, without a doubt, an exquisite she chef. I mean, but she was a cook. I mean, she she didn't have any credentials as a chef. So, but she was she was so wonderful, and she produced some of the most magnificent meals in a simple way. It was a French style cuisine. Um, we integrated some other cuisines, um, a little bit of Mexican occasionally, um, some simple American meals, some grilled steaks, some lobsters and stuff like that. And she created lots of different wonderful things. And Florence spoke fairly good English. Okay. But one of the problems that Florence and I had was a misunderstanding over the word may. I used to come down, may I have this, may I have that, may I have this, may I have that. You know, it's short, may I please have this, may I please have that. Well, Florence took it as an insult because she didn't understand that may was being used as uh, please in the language, and she thought I was just being simply rude and by not saying please may I have this or please may I have that. And it, it just got under her skin. She she was outraged at me. I mean, and it sort of came about with the guests sort of sensed that there was a sort of anxiety and, and, and tension between the two of us. I had no idea what was going on. So one night, um, we're in her cabin, and I said, hey, look, what's going on? Why are you so angry? And she explained it to me that, that I, I never ask politely when I'm asking stuff. I just demand. Now, look, I know, I know from experience that I can be demanding. I can be overbearing. I have to tone it down sometimes. It can be a bit arrogant. I get that. I know that. And that's something that you should be able to realize where your foibles run. So she explained to me that I never say please for anything. And then I said, well, I always say may. And she looked at me with, the, with a look of puzzlement. And I said, I say may all the time. That's the same as please. She says, no, it's not. I said, yes, it is. And then we finally realized what it was. And she said, ah, okay, I, I understand. I am so sorry. After that, all the tension was broken, and we had a good time, and everything sort of changed right on the dime and it was fantastic another um, mate I had is with Laura and I call her English Laura um, she was from uh, Soho in London um, she was a wonderful she was a chef she was a trained chef but she was really a graphic artist and artist and and she had a very definite um, way that she wanted to go about how she conducted herself. She was very formal. Um, she actually helped me quite a bit on the whole business of the business, basically, of the charter boat business. 
Um, she was very good with numbers, and she would point out that, you know, we could do better with this, this, you know, we could buy A, or we could buy B, we could do this, we could do that. So she was really sort of budget conscious. Um, she cooked great meals, um, not the greatest of meals. I wouldn't say that she was a Florence. Florence was exceptional. And it was kind of like a crazy, um, it was a kind of a crazy thing, but she was so well organized and, and so down to earth. Um, and, and the guests loved her. They just loved her. They loved her English accent. Um, she worked very hard. She was very, very uh, concerned about how the tips were divided and all the rest of this. Kind of, and she just, sometimes she gr- drove me crazy. But I will say this, that after her being on the boat for uh, two seasons, I think, two seasons, um, she made enough money. And we did, we had great years, those two years we did. I remember the first year we did 26 weeks of charter and this, and I didn't have anything break down. The second year, um, we did, I think six weeks of charter in Europe and another 20 some weeks in the Caribbean. So another 26 and 26 and nothing broke on the boat. I bought lots of stuff for the boat and, but she, we made some great tips and, we spent a lot of time, um, you know, talking about money, and, and she saved every freaking penny that she had. I mean, if we went out, she would, I'd always pay. And she was just, she was lovely. She was fun to be with, and she had a great sense of humor. But she had a goal, and her goal was to save enough money to buy a flat in Soho, which she did. And I understand that it's, she sent me pictures, it's a beautiful flat. And, and so she made some serious money with that. But the thing about English Laura was she was so businesslike. She set a kind of standard um, for being very business. And the, that business attitude um, for when the guests came, um, they, they understood that there were boundaries and where the boundaries were. And this is something that's really important to do with your guests. They have to know what the boundaries are. Otherwise, they'll kind of run over you. It's, it's a very complex um, dynamic when you're on a boat, no matter how big the, or small the boat is. So there are boundaries. And Laura was very good about setting up what those boundaries are and still having a good amount of fun and essentially reminding the guests that they were not our friends, per se. They were, we were becoming friends. But essentially, this was a business. Um, monies had been exchanged we're treating you as guests and customers, and that's the way it's going to be, and that's the boundary. I felt that even though we were very successful during those two years, that there was a sort of distance and a sort of formality that turned people off a little bit, you know, um, especially Americans. Um, the Europeans that we had on the boat uh, really didn't care. Um, it didn't bother them so much. They just said, oh, she's English. We understand. And then off we went. So it's really, really important to list your deficiencies. Um, and, and you have to be honest with yourself because I'll tell you, you can have a very, very beautiful boat, but it won't help you get charters if you don't have the personality and the skills to pull it off. 
there's a story, and I know the guy very, very well. He bought a $5 million boat, power boat, uh, beautiful, beautiful um, uh, Benetti. And uh, the owner ran the boat. He was on the boat all the time. He had a crew. It was a big boat. It was 120 feet, I guess, somewhere in that neighborhood. And, and, and he, had, he was on the boat. And he drove everybody freaking crazy. And um, it was his boat, and he sort of showed everybody that it was his boat. And he was such a jerk. Um, he ended up not getting any, any charters because of that. And the people that did charter, the brokers would ask, is, is he on the boat or is he off the boat? Is he on the boat? Is he off the boat? Because they didn't want their guests or their customers to be around this guy because he was such a jerk. And, and, and so he didn't do very much in the charter business, and he never figured it out. But he ended up being a friend of mine, so it was kind of weird hard to tell him that, you know, look, man, you're really an asshole. Um, people don't like being around you. Um, he wouldn't accept that. He was too egotistical as far as that was concerned. So let's talk some numbers. Um, one of my favorite boats is uh, Oyster 88. Um, it's a beautiful sailboat. It costs mm, $1.5, $1.6 million to buy. It is, in my opinion, one of the more perfect charter boats. Um, you could take up to eight people. Um, you get, you can expect to get around twenty-six thousand a week. Twenty, you know, pretty much the same in the uh, Mediterranean. You know, and you add up, and that's that would be plus the food and the crew, and and you know, you have to decide what you want to do with the boat, where you want to place it. Um, that's sort of a key thing. Uh, if you're in the Caribbean, um, obviously, if you're in the British Virgin Islands, a lot more people charter there than other places. Um, the St. Martin area, um, good place to charter, uh, a little bit rougher in terms of, of sailing. Um, Antigua is a great place to, to charter. Um, you're sort of in the, in the home of it. Uh, the Grenadines are a wonderful place to charter. Um, anywhere where there's lots of little islands that you can kind of move back and forth. Um, people love to, in Europe, to do the Balearics. Um, that's a good place uh, to charter. Different kind of charter when you get to Europe, but still just the same. So numbers-wise, you're making about 26000 a week. Um, you've got two months of the year. So you're only working 10 months, but you've got two months of the year you're moving the boat um, because you're either going to stay in the Caribbean, you're going to move to a different part of the Caribbean um, you know, to avoid hurricanes. Um, you might go to Miami. You might work out of Miami. You might go to the um, Bahamas. You might work out of the Bahamas. There's lots of different places that could perk your interest up. Going to Panama is always a big... Um, going to the islands there is always a big plus. So you have that, you have maintenance, you have repairs. Um, trust me, there's a lot of those. Um, you have, uh, all of this is, is daunting. This is why you have to almost do it yourself. Um, you, have, you can hire people, you can get, uh, you know, you're going to need new sales probably every three years or so. Um, so there's a lot, of, a lot of things that are going to come out of your pocket. 
So let's say you do 10 weeks of charter, which, which actually is a good number, okay? Um, you can do 10 weeks of charter. So that would be about $260,000 a year. Then I'm going to let you work out the, the, the cash for that. You've got your nut on 1.6, so let's say you have to put down a couple hundred thousand um, at least um, to get a loan, and then you have the maintenance of the loan, and you're just barely covering it. And the first year that you're going to do this, you're just you're going to spend a lot more money than you can imagine um, until you get it into its sweet spot. So that's kind of how big owners or rich owners will run their boat. They have cash flow outside the boat, and they can kind of feed it into the boat until they can get the business established. Now, I know many boats that are charter boats, big charter boats, that um, the owners have essentially uh, paid the boat off over time. They've made, they probably broke even, if they're lucky. Um, They have professional crews running the boat. And, you know, as the boat gets older, it loses a little bit of value. But still, they end up having their own boat. They enjoy their boat. Um, they, they take a month out of a year or whatever the case may be, and they jump on that boat and they go. I had an owner tell me one time that if I see him a lot, business is bad. If I don't see him at all, business is good. And that's pretty much how we ran it. One year, I was running his boat, and it was a Perini Navi, and um, I didn't see him the entire year call me on the phone, how you doing, what's going on, this, that, another thing. Um, The next year, uh, when there was a war in the Balkans, which he had a lot of ties to, um, it was insane. He was on the boat all the time and screaming in the phone and faxes being run across and, you know, like I got a 150-page fax one time. Um, He was trying to buy a railroad. I mean, just stuff like that. So... But there's another level, which is basically on the bottom, where you don't have a lot of money, and you're going to try to set it up so you know you can work your way up. And I like to call this section a building of reputation, because really it's the reputation that's going to carry you all the way through. And this is the key thing, and I think there's probably more listeners that are falling into this category then there are listeners um, in the rich boat area. So here's how it's done, and here's how I did it. I bought my boat at auction, completely at, a, at a, an accident to find a boat, um, which was a CT-54. I spent $105,000 on the boat. That $105,000 was money that I had made writing films. I had this in my pocket. And it was a good place to start. I could have gotten a bigger boat. I could have gotten a nicer boat at the time. But I bought something at auction, which was worth a lot more than that. I ended up selling it for far more than that after using it for 20 years. And the boat performed fantastic. The boat was a big, beautiful. It was wonderful for charter boat. It had a little bit of that pirate kind of uh, vibe. And it was wonderful that way. And guests love it. Families loved it. Um, it was romantic. People loved sailing the boat. 
It was a good all-weather boat. It was a good boat to do crossings in. It had just, it was good, solid. As people used to say to me, if this was a car, it would be a Bentley. Big, heavy, elegant, push forward. Although the Bentleys today probably aren't that. But in any case, so this is, I bought this boat. I spent probably another $15,000 in getting the boat set up um, in terms of uh, doing all the, all the varnishing, um, engines, uh, maintenance, new blocks, new lines, new sails. I probably sent, well, well the sails probably closer to about 20000 So I had about a hundred and basically I think I had about $130,000 into the boat before I had a single charter. So I went, I joined in, the, uh, I'd signed up for to the brokerage, um, the brokerage I was speaking of prior that was sold, and it was a nice woman that ran it, and she kept the books, and she kept um, the schedules and all the rest. I went to the boat shows, I introduced myself, I found a mate, very beautiful young woman. Um, I fell madly in love, and this is another reason why you get into the charter business is because in your own head, you want to find that perfect woman, guys, and in some cases, girls. Um, I have two friends that found their dream girls, um, and this was when people didn't come out and they were fairly cloistered. So, in the closet, as you would say. So, sex is a big component to this, by the way. I just want to add that. I mean, the whole, you know, sailing's sexy to start with. I said this in my other um, episode on sex and sailing. But, you know, there's this component. And having a girl that's working side by side and... And you, you guys are just doing it. I mean, it's, it's exciting. Even though you're exhausted, most of the time it's still, you know, it's sexy. It's sexy to do it. it plain sexy. So I ended up with this, this lovely woman, um, and she was my mate, and I made up brochures and all the rest of this kind of stuff, and she was just wonderful. She was from North Dakota. She had various good sense of uh, family and she was very hospitable um, and very inviting. She was wonderful with kids and she was quick with a smile. She was very funny. Um, and in my book, she was like, my first mate was the most perfect mate that I had. I had more perfect mates after that because I know some of my ex-mates are, do listen to the podcast and they were just as perfect. And so here I am, I've got the boat cleaned up, ready to go, already chartered, brand new everything. I've spent right, 130000 CT54. I'm looking pretty good. I'm getting about $11,000 a week to charter. I started out fairly slow. I think the first year I did about six or eight charters um, during that. Um, the second season... Um, I ended up doing, and that after the first year that I bought the boat, I didn't go anywhere. I stayed in the Caribbean. I didn't um, do the European thing. Um, got the shit kicked out of me during hurricane season. 
and then decided, okay, I'm not going to stay here and just get beat up. Um, just make the crossing and, and try to set up a business over there. And then the second year, I probably did about 10 or 11 charters. And then I went to Europe, and in Europe I did three charters in Europe, three-week charters. Came back, the business built up, I did another, um, I think I did about 15 charters. I uh, went back to Europe, and that year I did one charter. One charter in which I picked up the guests in um, Ventimiglia in Italy, and we sailed around um, Italy, um, and that was the entire summer. They had chartered the boat for the entire summer. Very unusual, um, a lot of fun, um, very risky in the sense that uh, I had to put up with the same people for, you know, months on end. But uh, the woman, the grandmother of the family, she was paying for it, and her husband had passed away, and she had loved sailing, and he had loved sailing. It was something their family shared. And they'd had their own boats similar to my CT. And they were very much uh, into sailing the boat and, you know, cooking their own meals and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And um, they would stop and get off the boat and I would wait for them. Um, in some cases, uh, she would go back. They had a business. The, the son had a business. So there was a lot of, you know, to and fro. Um, sometimes the, the wives would stay with the kids and, but anyway, it was just a beautiful, this is really what I loved about the whole chartering thing. And they taught me about so much about Italy and different places in Italy that I would have never discovered on my own. And it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. So then the next year after that, when I came back, um, I had built up a reputation as being reliable and nice and, I had a number of charter brokers that um, really pushed for the boat. Um, I had run in, started to run into a problem where my insurance costs were going up and the price that they could get for my boat was going down. Um, I went from 11000 down to about 7000 in the space of about four years. Um, St. Thomas had changed dramatically. Um, the Coast Guard was very, very aggressive. Um, stopping every boat for drugs. Um, even though you're in the harbor going out with guests and they're stopping the boat for drugs and this, that, and other thing. And they really came out this, and they said, you know, blatantly, yeah, we're going to screw with you as much as we can um, because, you know, we really don't want you here. So at the time when I first started, there was 354 crewed charter boats in St. Thomas, creating about $17 million in income for uh, Charlotte Amale and, and, and uh, Red Hook and the whole island of St. Thomas. And then they pushed us all out. Um, when I left, there was less than 17 crewed charter boats in, in Charlotte Amale as a base. Um, and it was just cruise ships. That's all they want. They want cruise ships. People come in, they spend on average, believe it or not, about 200 bucks, 250 bucks. They get back on the boat and they're gone that afternoon. Um, and that's what they wanted to do. And they didn't want us sitting out in Harbor. They didn't want our, the characters that come in the charter business and the sailing business around and all the rest of that kind of stuff. So basically St. Thomas was a no-go. 
Um, everybody, majority of the boats move to the British Virgin Islands, reflag their boat so that they were in um, uh, were under a British flag, a Commonwealth flag at least. And um, they stayed there. I uh, actually moved to St. Martin. Um, I did St. Martin, St. Bart's. Um, I had a lovely time chartering there. Um, I split time between there and I would go down to Antigua um, and I would charter in Antigua. Um, some years I would, I would get charters uh, in the Grenadines. Um, I remember one year we did, I think, about six charters in a row, one week after another, um, in the Grenadines. And um, it, was, uh, it was really fun. So you got to really know the place. And the boat got really, you know, really got worked. Um, but I spent most of my time when I didn't have guests. I was doing the maintenance. Um, I was varnishing or cleaning or doing the decks or whatever the case may be. So, I mean, there's always something to do on a boat. But I had built up a reputation um, that I was able to go and... Ch- change, um, I was able to change boats. Um, I had sold my boat and I moved up to running a a Perini Navi, which is a bigger 120 foot sailboat. And I ended up, I didn't own that boat. I actually ran that boat as a charter boat captain, but I actually was making more money running somebody else's boat than I was making my own boat. And I didn't have quite the latitude that I did with my own boat, which I missed. Um, But I did enjoy having a larger boat and being able to sail such a magnificent vessel. And this was a big deal. But a couple of my friends have done the same thing that I've outlined, which is they started small, they built up a reputation, they work really, really hard, and then they sell their boat and they buy another boat. There's two instances. One... Uh, couple that I know, um, Georgie, he uh, he ended up buying a, a powerboat. He had a sailboat, and they were very busy. And he had a sailboat, um, and they bought a powerboat. So then he had the option of running a charter business with, with both, because he asked me one time if I would run his sailboat while he ran the powerboat. And he's, he, he bought it um, because it was partially wrecked during a hurricane and um, he had fixed it up and they started running charters out of both boats Um, so he was hiring people to do that Um, eventually uh, his wife got sick and they had to sell the business which was really unfortunate then another friend of mine who were friends of mine who were uh, Danish um, they had found a boat that was um it was down in the Grenadines. It was a sailboat. It was a sort of a big motor sailor. And it was really a great charter boat. Um, if you're getting into being like a sailing purist, you only want a certain thing, you know, um, that's great. Um, but it's not always the best charter boat. Most charter boats, you know, big um, room, um, not necessarily, you know, racing boats. If that's what you're going to do is have racing boats and racing charter boats, um, it's a very small niche for people to come and say, oh yeah, I want to go out and race every day in my, in my boat. And, and a lot of costs, a lot of expenses because racing boats have a tendency to break and usually break expensive stuff. 
So anyway, this is the point um, that my friends, the Danish people, um, Georgie, they they bought this boat and they fixed it up. It took them three, three and a half months. They spent 170000 on the boat. I remember this very specifically. 170000 on the boat um, to buy it. They put it in the yard and they spent another $50,000 on the boat in the yard. And then they dropped it in the water and they started their charter business from there. But because they had such a good reputation, them having a new boat was sort of a lot of fanfare. Yay, I got a new boat. Um, they did extremely well, and they just kept going. Another friend of mine um, is a re- was a record producer, and uh, he and his wife, uh, they had a, a beautiful uh, 90-foot something custom-made Pendennis uh, sailboat and um, which he had spent a ton of money on. And they went the opposite way. They sold that boat because it was costing them too much to run and bought them bought themselves a um, catamaran. And the catamaran in the charter business is great. Catamarans do very well in the charter business. And that's what they did. So they had this beautiful custom catamaran, and they just they soaked up some cash. So going back, choosing the right boat is really important. How you finance the boat is really important. Um, just a small note in the finance that, you know, boat loans are like car loans. Um, there's a specific loan amount. You have to pay interest over a fixed term. Um, and when you apply, you can apply for boat financing through banks, credit unions, boat dealers, marine finance companies. There's all sorts of people out there looking to give you um, loans. Um, most times you need a fairly uh, sizable down payment. Um, and you need to have really good uh, credit. Um, and, you know, before you commit to the loan, you have to know where you're going to get your 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 cash from. And if you have a reputation, and especially if you go to a particular uh, finance people that know boats and know the charter business um, in the Caribbean, there's there's a few places down there. They'll check to see what your reputation is, and they'll they'll figure out about how much money you're going to be able to make. So this this exists. Um, it does also exist in the Mediterranean. There's all sorts of ways to finance a boat in the Mediterranean um, based on your charter experience. So. You can move up on boats, you could start small, build your reputation, then move up into something bigger, or you could finance something bigger given the fact that you already have an established business. Remember, the charter business, you establish it just like any other business. It is a business, okay? Income and, and, and outcome, it, you know, receipts and, and debits. That's what it is. If you can show you have a couple of years, experience, then um, you should be able to get a loan and and move up. But committing to the charter business is committing to the charter business. And next week, I think what I'll do is I'm going to tell you some stories um, about the good and bad and what charters are like from the cruise point of view and how much fun it can be and how much of a terror it can be. I want to thank you. Uh, for listening, and um, fair winds and smooth seas. Thank you very much.